you know, the first level of knowledge is you don't have a clue. You don't even know the technique exists. So you can't use it because you don't even know it's there. Second level is you know enough to be dangerous, which means you know it's there and you can use it, but you're as likely to use it wrong and come up with a wrong but believable answer uh, as you are maybe to use it correctly. Third level is you know enough to be effective, which means you know it's there. You're going to use it. You're probably going to use it right. And you're probably going to draw a correct conclusion. That's where we all want to be, right? And when I teach classes, I say, I can only get you between two and three. No one have to be dangerous. I can't get you all the way to effective because that takes practice. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. In the world of medical devices, time is usually of the essence. But here's the problem. Traditional product development processes are usually as slow as molasses. They cause delays and they're headaches for companies like yours. Greenlight Guru is the ultimate solution for medtech's biggest challenge. You may be facing lengthy development cycles that drain your resources and hinder progress, but we streamline the entire product development journey. We make it faster, we make it more efficient and less prone to hiccups. By centralizing your data management, automating your workflows, and allowing real-time collaboration. It's all here. It's designed to propel your projects forward. And guess what? Regulatory compliance is built right in. It reduces the risk of costly revisions and ensuring you stay on track. With Greenlight Guru, you're not just developing products. You're accelerating progress, making a difference when it matters most. Don't let inefficiency hold you back. Embrace innovation with Greenlight Guru. Go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I'm the host of today's episode. With me today is Kevin Becker. Kevin is the author of Quality Myths and Lessons Learned. I heard him present on this topic. I really was impressed. Uh, we did an episode on it, but now he has a second edition. And I'm excited to see um, the things that have changed. He mentioned, it doesn't sound like you've read the book. And I haven't read this. I read the first edition. I have not read the second. So I'm excited to get my hands on that. But first, let me introduce Kevin. Kevin has a bachelor's degree in me mechanical engineering from the University of Minnesota and a master's degree in reliability engineering from the University of Maryland. Kevin is an ASQ certified quality engineer, reliability engineer, and Six Sigma black belt, and has experience as a quality reliability engineer, quality manager, director of engineering, and director of quality in the medical device, computer disk drive, um, uh, measurement equipment and machining industries. He's trained engineers, technicians, executives, managers, and su supervisors in quality and reliability methods, statistical techniques, and risk management methods. Kevin, as I mentioned, he's authored this book and co-authored uh, uh, published papers in the areas of reliability, probabilistic risk assessment, and measurement correlation, and uh, has been on a few podcasts, including this one. So I'm excited to be with you today. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Getting over a little bit of a cold. So if my voice is scratchy, you have to excuse that. But Okay, no worries. No problem at all. Glad you're with us today. So tell us a little bit about what prompted. I'm, I'm always curious, what is it that changed in your mind? Or what did you feel like maybe was missing that you felt you needed to do a second edition? Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, <clears throat> I have a day job, as you know, I work full time and, and then I have consulting on the side and I wrote the book as part of the consulting job. And 
the first edition, there was a, a, a time constraint that I was under, and I knew that I couldn't include everything in it. I it, had, it was a compromise, right, between time and material. And <clears throat> there was a time constraint that I wanted to meet. So I did, but I knew I left things out, right? And then I kind of learned the hard way with the first edition that color is really expensive. And, you know, the first edition, if I'm being open, was more costly than I thought it should be. So the second edition, I decided to make it less costly. And I went with black and white. So the second edition has 50% more content for half the price is what it ends up being. It was a big difference between color and black and white. That's really impressive. So tell me a little bit about the content. I remember when we talked about, uh, I, I've drawn a lot of different things that I've still, I've still quote that book. One of my favorites is what is the most important part of the quality management system? And I still like that as a trick question. I'm like, well, this is what Kevin Becker says. And, and I'll yeah. just leave that hanging for just a moment. But, um, what are some things that you think are, are changed? And I wish I had it in front of me. I apologize for that. But what are some of the things that we can look for and uh, and really draw from? Well, last time I, I talked about an embarrassing episode. It was regarding ethics. Excuse me. <clears throat> I put a whole chapter in here on ethics this time. And I wanted to put it in the first edition, but I didn't. Primarily because I was afraid that it would maybe reflect on certain people that it shouldn't reflect on, right? I mean, people might, readers might interpret that I'm talking about my current employer, my current situation, whatever the case might be. So then I left it out because I didn't want to have the wrong <clears throat> interpretation. I decided over time that, you know what, just be straightforward about it. And none of the examples in that chapter are from my current employer unless it's otherwise specified there's one but it ended up being a positive example but you know the message or the story that i told last time was when early in my career is living paycheck to paycheck young son and wife at home and <clears throat> i was told to fabricate some data and i did it and I lost sleep for two or three nights, and I went back to my boss and said, don't ever ask me to do that again, uh, thinking that I might end up losing my job over it. Turned out I didn't lose my job. He said, okay, and we actually got along great for decades after that. It, it, it turned out really well. But there are other instances as well. I was told at one time to, you know, if sales lies to a customer, you lie to a customer. And I was pretty livid. I had kind of, I had my badge in my hand at that time. I went to my manager and said, I'm not doing this. And, and he kind of, you know, talked me down off the ledge and, and said, uh, <clears throat> I'll take care of it. And he did. And I never heard anything about it again. So, you know, that one yeah. also turned out well. Um, I had one time when engineering manager asked me, I have a conference in the cafeteria which you know that's off the record right if it's in cafeteria it always is and he wanted me to make a certain decision that uh I th the wording i believe was something along the lines of there's a pile of money out there and we should grab our share he was talking about yearly bonus right because we could Im increase short-term profits through certain actions but i was certain that the long-term effect to the company would be detrimental so you know i <clears throat> declined to do that 
Um, and there are other instances, and I, it's not only me. I've talked to other people in the quality pr profession as well, and you run into things like that. So the reason I thought it was important to include in the book, especially for young people getting into the industry, is that you just got to think about that, right? You, you, you know that it might happen and think about it in advance so you're not taken by surprise like I was the first time. And then, you know, and there I also mentioned or talked about the fact that it's not always clear cut either though right i mean go back to the discussion with the engineering manager i was certain that long term it would be bad for the company but what if i wasn't certain what if there was a 20 percent chance that long term it would have been good for the company you know what if that was 40 percent? what if it was 60 what if there was an 80 percent chance it would be both good short term and long term at some point the ethical equation flips right um, <clears> through <throat> the whole chapter uh, about ethics in this one, I think it's probably the most controversial chapter. But I remember you telling me there would be a, a chapter on ethics, and I'm I'm glad you put that in there. And I remember the story you gave, and it's interesting. I I just recently saw I don't know if you saw the re recall. Um, that uh, was it. Let's see who was it that did this. Was it Medtronic? Essentially, it doesn't really matter who it was, but um, there's recently a recall where parts had been stolen from the scrap or NC uh, disposition and were being sold on Facebook Marketplace. Oh, and that one I, I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, I have to pull it up. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link for people. But um, I basically, someone posted that on LinkedIn and I basically said, well, if anybody wonders how this happens, they've probably never seen a manufacturing, the, the scrap bin in a manufacturing facility. And it's not that this is the way it should be, but I can remember my past um just talking about the ethical dilemmas or the things that you may face and nobody tells you about. Um, I can remember having a, an assembly that was, it retailed for $96,000 and is on my desk and someone were dropped by. I'm like, man, we could sell that on eBay. I'm like, well, I never thought about that. And then I thought, yeah. wow, that is a temptation that, you know, did you feel it? And, and we didn't do anything with that, but I thought, man, you know, that's, that's something I never would have thought of, you know, and you go by the scrap bin and there are pieces of this just thrown in there and and, and so forth. Yeah. Anyway, it's a very real thing that, that you're right. I never was quite prepared for. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I ended up uh, putting a little more math in this one than the previous one. It's obviously not all math. There's a chapter on ethics, but there, there's some more math in here. There's a, paper that i wrote i actually presented at an international conference a while back and then <clears throat> i adapted it to a, a broader topic it, 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 that paper was really specific but that one is in here it's uh designing time accelerated tests and the, the the reason i bring that up is because when i was developing that method when i was writing it it actually actually was kind of ridiculed by other engineers within the same companies kind of smart guys but they didn't understand the science and math behind it you know um long story short it was peer-reviewed published presented at an international conference whatever the point the reason i bring it up is sometimes you have to be willing to stand your ground when you know you're right sometimes you have to be willing to stand your ground even other uh, engineers might not always see it the same way or understand the same level. That same topic actually had a, a different job. 
accelerated testing in general, the topic on accelerated testing, uh, one of the senior management was, was questioning the validity. And, you know, again, I had to justify it using physics and math. And, and I think I ended up saying, if you, if you trust the physics and you trust the math, you trust the method. Where it can fall apart is if you have the wrong understanding of physics, if you made a math error or something like that, it can fall apart. But if you trust it, <clears throat> it works. You know, kind of along those lines, it was, there's an example in here also about uh, statistics work, even when it's not obvious. I remember very clearly a project where we had two different product lines, very similar, same customer, but one product line had 0.5% more contamination than the other product line. 0.5% difference. It was statistically significant, clearly statistically significant. It wasn't borderline. There was a difference. We had a project team, and we worked for months, couldn't find the answer, um, disbanded the project team. And then I got a call from the lead one day a few weeks later, and she said, hey, I think I found the problem. Well, these are small parts, 12 on a strip, stainless steel parts. And on the one product line, when we found one of the parts was bad, we had a little tool. We'd clip it off and throw it away. The other product line, we didn't have a tool, so we would grab the strip and grab the part with our fingers and bend it back and forth until it came off the strip. Even though we were wearing finger cuts, gloves, finger cuts are just, you know short. Uh, but even though we had protection on our hands, we were transferring contamination to the adjacent parts when we bent the one back and forth to remove it. Point is, statistics told me they were different. We couldn't find the difference for months, but that difference was there. We just hadn't looked in the right place yet. Wow. That's a really good story. <laughs> yeah. That is too, too, too cool. Um, how do you, so you mentioned young engineers and maybe we could talk about the target audience or who this, uh, who this book would really be good for. Um, young, old alike. It sounds like, especially when you talk about the physics and the science, even if you've been in the career for a while, we all have something to learn. Um, who do you, who do you really target? Yeah, in the in the back of the book, there's actually a short synopsis of each chapter, and it lists who that chapter is targeted at. But the target audience is fairly broad because I would say senior managers need to read that chapter on ethics because if we as managers are putting young employees in that situation, shame on us, right? Remember when I said the, the first story, I had a young son at home, young wife, paycheck to paycheck. Understand that it can be difficult for someone to take an ethical stand in that situation. And as a manager, we should not be putting him in that situation, plain yeah. and simple. So senior managers, I think, could benefit from the book as well as young engineers. Different yeah. chapters, different people. Yeah, absolutely. And I like how that is laid out almost, uh, you know, read what applies in the moment and, and learn from it as you go. That's really good. Yeah. Is there, is there anything that, um, it, you, you mentioned the first time there's time constraint this time, maybe it took a little bit longer, but you got, uh, you, you're able to, to get something out a little bit better in your mind. Um, 
Was there anything that you're really proud of in this version compared to the previous edition? Well, the two that we've talked about already. Um, yeah. I also have the, the, the last chapter and not second to last chapter is, is called Short Bites. It's just a, a bunch of short little topics. Some of them are more than a page, maybe could have been a chapter on their own, but a lot of them are maybe only a couple paragraphs. There's one that I, I call uh, thermodynamics in the workplace. And <clears throat> when I had took thermodynamics at the University of Minnesota, the instructor had a great example, great example um, of, of entropy, kind of a esoteric concept a little bit. But he, he was holding a ceramic coffee mug. He said, if I drop this mug, it's going to break into a thousand pieces. Those thousand pieces will never spontaneously form into a mug. That's entropy. Essentially, the universe tends toward chaos. And I found in the workplace, it's the exact same thing. Like, take a quality management system. If we don't constantly work to maintain that system and to maintain order, it will eventually devolve into chaos, right? Everybody starts doing their own thing. And pretty soon, you don't know what, what people are doing, how the parts are being made. So... Thermodynamics in the workplace. It's a physical concept, but it applies to human behavior. I like that. That's really cool. Um, yeah, that man, bringing back some good and bad memories with thermodynamics. <laughs> <laughs> that was a uh, thermo one was better than thermo two for me. But anyway, so that that's really cool. I like how you really apply the physics and the science and things. You know, sometimes when we think of quality assurance versus, uh, you know, um, maybe some of the harder science people, um, hesitate, I guess, to, uh, to, to apply some of that or, or think about how it's, uh, something that we should still be keep staying sharp on, but what, um, if there are probably going to be people who don't read the book, maybe, you know, uh, you know, poor, the majority of the people who listen to this might, might not get the book. Um, any other stories? I love, I, I love stories and I wish I had the specific ones to dive into more detail, um, with you on, but, uh, um, do you have any, and I'm actually going to ask a specific, maybe I'll ask a specific piece of advice for those in quality or regulatory or whatever role they may be in. Are there, I know you still study math and science and things like that. Do you have a way or a suggestion on staying sharp on that or a reason behind it? That just, I don't know if I, if that, that question is making any sense, but. Yeah, I, I, I have a natural interest, honestly. I have a calculus book next to the rocker where i sit and watch tv sometimes so if i get bored during the tv show and i think i may have mentioned that last time it's still something that i most people find really odd so <laughs> um <clears throat> i have a natural interest in it though but along those lines actually when i was working in a previous job um there were three or four of us who were in a reliability engineering group and none of us were reliability engineering professionals yet at that time and the one person who was as our mentor left the company so then we were kind of sitting there saying okay you know we can do this but how will we know if we're going in the wrong direction how will we know if we're heading off the rails if you will um 
And what we did that worked really well is we found that Minnesota had a society of reliability engineers, professional society, and they had monthly meetings. And we started attending those monthly meetings and we started talking to people who were professionals in the field and learning from them and ended up presenting at you know, a couple of those meetings, but just the the networking and the learning, we could ask them questions like, okay, you know, this is what we think we should be doing. Is that the right direction? Or are we heading off in the weeds somewhere? And they'd tell us, I mean, it was really nice people, right? It's everybody's there to connect and, and help each other. So that's one way Find uh, There are societies out there. There are professional societies, ASQ, uh, this was a subchapter of IEEE, but there are people out there who are more than willing to help if you do find yourself on an island. So that's one thing I would do. I mean, obviously, you can take college courses, you can do self-study podcasts, you can, you know, there are books on tape, all, all that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, maybe the one that I would point out is there are a lot of people out there willing to help. Okay. The the. The thing that I mentioned from the first book that I go back to a lot is what's your favorite thing about a quality management system? And I, and, and I hope I'm attributing this correctly, but management responsibility. Um, are there things like that or is there anything in the book? Uh, it, I, and I'll have to go back and I'll tell you what I find, but anything like that, any tidbits that, that you really uh, might be contrarian takes or or something that maybe not everybody agrees with. Or I, I love that little controversial area. It's always interesting to find those sections. Yeah, um, there's one in there about measurement error or measurement capability. Right there's a there's a rule that when you're doing a measurement error study, you need to have five distinct categories. In other words, that the the products, parts being used for the measurement error study, the measurement system has to be able to distinguish them into five distinct categories. And people, it, it, it's a good rule in a certain context, but people apply it when it when it shouldn't really apply. We've had measurement capability, you know, down in less than 10% of the tolerance okay so our distribution is really tight say so our ppk is above five right our cpk is above five and the parts that we obtain for the measurement study are almost identical so of course the measurement equipment cannot distinguish five different categories because the parts are almost identical and we've had customers refuse to approve the measurement system because we didn't meet that five distinct category threshold <clears throat> it would cost it would be six probably seven figures to buy a measurement equipment that could do that so let's you know put it in context again right we have a highly capable process parts per billion non-conforming if even and you want me to spend a million dollars on a new piece of measurement equipment just because we didn't meet that five distinct category that's ridiculous. If you can sell that, you need to go into sales because you retire a millionaire in the first five years. <laughs> There's no no uh, senior management that I can think of that would that would think that's that's a good decision. But people get so you, you know you 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 read the book and that's an easy rule to understand, but you don't understand why it's there, and then you're not able to understand when it doesn't make any sense and you know the real reason for that rule is 
if you're trying to improve your process, you have to be able to tell one part from another, the difference among the parts. <clears throat> we have a highly capable process. We're not interested in improving this one. We have much more problematic areas we need to focus our attention, and we're not going to buy new measurement equipment for something like this. So yeah. there, there's a, a one that where I completely disagree with the way people do are doing it, implementing it. Well, I, th this makes it, I don't know how I, it, it tickled my brain this far back to go into one of my social studies classes in college talked about the, the EPA water when it, that, when that act was enacted across the United States, the way they enacted it is everybody had to improve their water system by X percent. Well, those guys in Alaska were dealing with some pure water. So they said, well, the only way we can adhere to this law is to dump some bad stuff in the water so we can improve it. So they did that. And so they realized we we're going to have to tweak this law. But it made me think of that. You know, uh, some people who are real good real rule followers have some unique ways of following the rules. Um, but that's a really good point. And when you talk about that, you know, you mentioned that you mentioned another conversation where you, you, you man, you have to be able to stand up to your peers. Um, if you you mentioned the uh, uh, the the way the physics and science, I don't remember the exact specific example, but um, how the other engineers around didn't necessarily agree with that. And in this situation, maybe the customer didn't agree with it. Um, and then in others, ethical situations, management may you may. I'll get to the point. Uh, and I'll stop this TED talk, but it's a matter of being willing to and able to stand up and be competent enough to stand up to both the customer, your peers and management. And um, I know the book kind of deals with how to do that in those different situations or gives examples. But do you have any advice for for people in those different situations um, on how to have the confidence and the, the ability to to do that in each one of those circumstances? The only way that I can have confidence is the word you used is if I've studied the material and and I understand it to a level. It almost gets to the point where I need to be able to derive it. I mean, there's a chapter in here where I heard a rule of thumb in my reliability engineering class. They said if you uh, you know want ninety five percent confidence of a certain proportion defective, non-conforming, whatever, you just uh, divide three by the proportion defective, and that's your sample size. They give you 95% confidence. But, hey, that's pretty cool. Why does it work? When doesn't it work? Because it's a rule of thumb. Rule of thumb only works over a certain range, and it's important to know when it doesn't work so you understand when you might be making a mistake. So I went and derived it. It wasn't that difficult. The derivation's in the book. Um, but that's how I gain confidence. I will convince myself that I understand it to a level where I can extrapolate a little bit without um, <clears throat> being wrong. I hate being wrong. I absolutely hate being wrong. It makes me a little bit conservative. It still happens, but I hate yeah. it. No, I respect that a lot. Um, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we, we talk about confidence in this society a lot but we don't always talk as much about competence and i think that's yeah. really how you should derive your confidence that makes sense um that's that's a really good point i started thinking of maybe like a polynomial um line you know a lot of times we have the information between two points and i can remember how they taught us in in school anybody can extrapolate but engineers interpolate <laughs> we yeah. stay between the bounds and so it's yeah. a matter of knowing the bounds Unless you're a reliability engineer. 
That's right. No, I'm, seriously, then you have to extrapolate because yeah. product life is 20 years. You can't test a product for 20 years before you put it on the market. The market's already changed. It, right. You have to test in the lab. You have to accelerate and you have to extrapolate at that point. It's the only way to stay in business. There are tricks, though, to extrapolating. It goes back to science. When you're doing that uh, accelerated testing, you have to understand the physics and the chemistry of what's causing the failure. Because if you if you it, accelerate too far, you'll cause a failure that won't ever happen in the field. I mean, the easiest example is excel, uh, higher temperatures often used to accelerate failure. Well, if you heat it enough, you're going to melt it. Is it ever going to melt in the field? No, it's never going to melt in the field. But there are a lot of less obvious, more subtle ways that you can you can go wrong with that. So one of them is understand the physics and make sure that then you do failure analysis and you see, okay, is what we expected to happen? Is that what happened? If yes, then we're doing what we intended. If no, we better look closer because maybe we've just learned something that we should have known all along and it's going to be very important to us. Um, you know, another trick with accelerated testing is standard deviation has to stay the same between you, you test at different acceleration levels, right? Standard deviation has to stay the same from one level to the next. If it doesn't, you've changed the failure mechanism. Well, almost, almost certainly changed the failure mechanism. You're not accelerating what you want to accelerate. So yeah, I actually actually glad you brought up the extrapolations. I, I understand never extrapolate. That's what we're taught in college. But when you have a 20-year product life and you want to figure out if it's gonna fail, you can't test for 20 years. No, this is a, that's really good. I love these conversations that take me down a, a road I wasn't expecting because you've kind of when I think about that interpolation, it is something we're taught in college pretty heavily, at least mechanical where I was. But you're right. At some point, you have to know what what's a reasonable extrapolation, and yeah. uh, that's kind of the the additional trick. You know, we don't want to just get caught up in our original fundamental teaching. Add, yeah, add onto it. And in the you know in the pharma industry for drug life, they'll do accelerated testing at higher temperature, but at the same time, they put product on the shelf for uh, real time tests, aging, right? And mm -hmm. they'll just leave it on the shelf, and then they'll tested every so often so if it's a three-year life the accelerated testing might give you that answer in a matter of weeks or months but then there will actually be product on the shelf for three four five years and every so often they'll pull some off and test it just to make sure so it's accelerate get the quick answer get the drugs out there so people can benefit from them but then follow it up with yeah. real-time aging so i think about this really being applicable with uh, packaging. Um, I wonder if, do you, do you have some other examples you might give in this accelerated testing? I mean, I, I, I remember working with the silicone product where we accelerated the vulcanization through heat, but um, it's just on the tippy toe of my knowledge. But I'm curious if you have a, a specific example, because you get me really curious about some of this. Yeah, we have one. It was a, a medical device and it had glass fibers. Okay. Um, it would read uh, light signal through the through the glass fibers, and early on, we conducted an FMEA because that's what you're supposed to do. And we identified that glass fibers breaking were a potential failure mode that concerned us. And so we 
we started a test where we just had uh, the fiber or the cable was suspended between pulleys and one pulley would move up and down. It was a weight on the end. So we were fatiguing it, right? We were bending it, simulating repeated bending in the field. And we got the results and we found out that, oh, darn, these things are breaking faster than than we can have with the with the product life. Um, so it's interesting. We had a debate among the engineering team. And I'm going to say I lost the battle but won the war, if you want to be uh, use that analogy. But the debate was, do we hold the fibers tighter? Or do we hold them looser, which is worse? And, and you know, my my hypothesis was you got to hold them looser because if you squeeze those things, as soon as the first one breaks, now you have a sharp edge that you're forcing to scrape against the adjacent ones because you're holding it too tightly. And the opposite uh, argument was no holding them more tightly will prevent them from breaking anyway. So we decided to hold them more tightly put them on test and they broke in half the time or a third of the wow. time. So then we, then we said, okay, that didn't work. Then we hold them more loosely. And that did extend the life to the point where it was successful. And we, we didn't really have to worry about it in the field anymore. It's so crazy that you could have a very intelligent conversation and, and, and truly, you know, be on both sides of this fence. That's, you know, a lot of times, that's just really interesting. I love those conversations. I can, yeah, I can remember those whiteboard conversations. It's really fun. Um, I'm curious what didn't make it into the book and what your criteria was. Did you have any kind of, was there anything that you thought, well, okay, that's going to stay on the cutting room floor. And for this reason, um, part of it was time. I had, I was very busy in my day job again, and I had, put a timeline on myself of this year and am I kind of surprised that I met it actually because I was so busy doing other things I was a little bit surprised I met it so part of it was just time um and then maybe I didn't remember everything uh to put in there right there's one thing that I you know wish I would have had in there it's a a little bit tongue-in-cheek but uh QC training services has actually used it with my permission recently but it's uh Becker's five levels of knowledge. Because, you know, I read things like uh, in ASQ, you get certification, they have Bloom's taxonomy, and I read those definitions. And even after I read them, I don't fully understand exactly what they mean. So I said, okay, I'm going to make it easier. So I'm, I made up my own. And this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, so hopefully nobody gets offended by it. But, you know, the first level of knowledge is you don't have a clue. You don't even know the technique exists. So you can't use it because you don't even know it's there. Second level is you know enough to be dangerous which means you know it's there and you can use it, but you're as likely to use it wrong and come up with a wrong but believable answer uh, as you are maybe to use it correctly. Third level is you know enough to be effective, which means you know it's there. You're going to use it. You're probably going to use it right, and you're probably going to draw a correct conclusion. That's where we all want to be, right? And when I teach classes, I say I can only get you between two and three. Know enough to be dangerous. I can't get you all the way to effective because that takes practice. You got to do this thing. You can't just sit in a classroom and absorb it. Fourth level is you don't have to teach it. I used to think teaching was easy until I started teaching. And then I figured out that you teach smart people and they ask smart questions that make you think about the subject in a way you maybe haven't thought about it before. So you're learning at the same time as you're teaching and you have to think on your feet. And that's not as easy as I thought it was. 
it's it makes it fun though um and then the fifth level is you don't have to make it up which essentially you take basic principles and you create new new ideas new concepts new methods from the basic principles yeah that's so that didn't make it in there but it would have if i had thought of it but i was busy and i had other things on my mind and i didn't think of it yeah well, that's cool it made me think of the uh the know enough to be effective um, and then to teach it, the, the the fourth level, when you talked about if you, you almost feel like you have to know something well enough to derive it, to feel confident um, yeah. defending it to your customer or your manager, um, I think that would be really beneficial if we taught things more often. You know, we would have more confidence yeah. because that's what you're doing, really, when you're when yeah. you're standing up to somebody, you're teaching them. So. Yeah. You know, along those same lines, there is a, a story, and this one made it in into the book, but there's a... I remember a time where a customer had rejected over a million dollars worth of product over a span of months, right? Yeah. And they'd send parts back, we'd measure and say, no, these are good. So they just had all this million dollars worth of product sitting on their shelves. And, you know, they weren't real happy with us. And I remember one day my, my boss called me into his office, looked me in the eye and said, are we right or are we wrong? And the question took me a little bit by surprise, just the timing. I, I didn't know it was going to happen, right? So I stopped to think about it a while and I went through it in my head and we were very careful about how we were controlling our measurement equipment. And so I could look them back and say, no, we're right. And, you know, went on maybe a, a couple more months and then customer was visiting. He said, hey, I want to talk to you outside for a little bit. So we went outside and he said, uh, by the way, we found the problem with our measurement equipment. You guys were right all along and we're going to accept all this product i never heard an official you were right i heard it unofficially outside um but it goes back to a lot of what we've been talking about you to have confidence you know i i had to have the data i knew the data was there though it was all there i had been monitoring it it was my job to part of my job to monitor this stuff so i could confidently say hey, we're right yeah and turned out we were Kudos to him for even asking the question. I don't know if a lot of people think to ask that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that's something that I'll have to take away. Am I right? Am I wrong? You know, that's yeah. The other thing that you mentioned there, because you mentioned that that's the second time, is okay, he took you outside. And the other time there was a conf the cafeteria conversation, which those are technically off the record. How do you and I don't know, you probably handle this sort of in your ethics, uh maybe subtly in your ethics chapter, but what are your thoughts on those conversations? I've had um, that they're important, but they can also be dangerous. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. They can be the best conversations. They can also be the worst conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's when you're I have one of, yeah, this isn't in the book, but I remember uh, a similar conversation, a colleague and I, wanted to have a cafeteria conversation and at that time we were both frustrated that we'd ask questions of the management and they they wouldn't give us what we considered to be good directions we talked it out for a while and we said we're just going to do what we think is the best and they'll tell us that they don't like it so we're going to quit asking them questions we're just going to do what we think we should and they'll tell us if we're wrong they never told us we were wrong so that's the case where that off the record conversation had a very good outcome, right? Yeah. 
it's kind of like the engineering notebook. Um, I, I guess maybe that I'm, I'm equating it to documented conversations or documented anything. And maybe that's not really the way to look at it, but, um, yeah, some, something that's not necessarily going into your DHF. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. It's something that I don't know that we put a lot of cognitive thought into, or at least I didn't when I was either on the manufacturing floor and product development, um, those conversations, I would just have conversations anywhere. And, and, and the more I think about it now, I look back and I think I actually, there was a point in my life when I, there was one particular person where I realized I can't talk to this person unless there's someone else around because it's just, oh, yeah. it always is goes sideways. So, um, but there's always those human interactions. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess one other thing that did not make it into the book that, that you asked about, um, yeah. <clears throat> probably the most interesting project that I ever got to work on ended up being a trade secret. So I can't go into details, but I can do a, a high level thing. Right. But um, <clears throat> it was a statistical model for life of a product. And we had like a year and a half's worth of testing on the product to work on the model. And I was looking through literature to find models and, and uh, developing the method and, I sent it out for review and and the answer was, yeah, we don't know. So we were working with a statistician at the University of Minnesota, PhD statistician, and so we said, okay, we'll have him review it instead. And he, he, he uh, came to a meeting and he said, you know, this is probably one of the hardest problems in statistics and what you did seems right. That, that was, that's one of the, probably the most <laughs> rewarding yeah. project that I've ever had and and you know to be upfront i didn't solve a closed form i used a combination of closed form monte carlo curve fitting all kinds of stuff but that that was really interesting that was that was fun if i could you know yeah. do five more projects like that i'd consider it a life but i'm i'm over 60 and so i'm i think i'm a little different phase of my career but i, I would still like to do projects like that again Ah, uh, you get faster as you get older though because you've already done it so yeah, I'm sure you've got yeah. more. Um, have you thought about this? Is something I've been thinking a little bit lately, and and so I need somebody to tell if I'm right or wrong. Complicated problems versus complex problems. Some with a this is the answer, others with a this is the best answer possible. Um, situation. Have you thought much about that, or do you have a comment or opinion? Yeah, the example I just mentioned was one of those where this yeah. is the best answer possible. It was not the perfect answer, but it was the best one. We could do, I make the, when I'm teaching, a lot of times I will tell people, you know what, we're engineers, we're not mathematicians. And I'm not disparaging anybody, but I, in my head, the way I view it is mathematicians look for the right answer, the perfect answer. Engineers look for the best answer to help the company be profitable, right? So it might not be the right, it might not be the perfect answer, but it might be close enough. There's a quote in the book. I actually have six quotes that I have on my board at work, and, and they're all listed in the book. And this one's from George E.P. Box. It's all models are wrong. Some models are useful. And as an engineer, we want a useful model. We're not going to spend an extra, you know, I could have spent an extra five years on that project. I said it was a year and a half worth of testing. Well, that's because it was physical testing and we couldn't accelerate it any faster than that within reason. Um, if I spent another five years, could I have made it better? Probably. But 
would it have been a good use of the company's money? No way. Yeah. Because it was useful. Yeah. That's a really Does that good answer your question. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think that's something and I think we could stand to learn. Or we just got to be hit over the head with that multiple times early in our career. You know, this, if you've got a problem that, yeah, it's just a, a mathematical problem. Sure. Get the answer. But if it's a complex problem with very system systemic, uh, lots of different threads, you're it's a, it's more of a complex problem. You're just gonna have to find what works for this situation. I love that. Yeah, you just reminded me of uh, a, a young engineer who was reporting to me, and he he get himself all tied up analysis paralysis. You know, he just he kept digging further without without implementing anything. And I had a really good relationship with him. So while we were in a one on one meeting at one point, I said, "Do any do something, do anything. If it's wrong, we'll learn from it. Just do something." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. I, I was I was there at one point. <laughs> I know I was that guy. Um, what other thoughts or pieces of advice do you have and uh, or, or recommendations from the book? I highly recommend people get it. Those of you listening, we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but in the last few minutes, do we have any any last piece of advice or thoughts? Be true to yourself. It goes into ethics. It also goes into being competent. You know, decide who you want to be, and then. Do what it takes to become that person. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm going to get my hands on the book and I'll let you know once I once I read it too, because I'm excited. You've you've whet my appetite and uh, I'm interested in, in getting more into this, especially the accelerated testing. Um, but uh, all of it's going to be interesting. So I'm excited. And, and thank you for putting the work in to help the industry and help those who are early in their career, senior management, everybody who could benefit from this. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. All right. We'll let you get back to it. Everybody take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, can I ask a special favor from you? Can you leave us a review on iTunes? I know most of us have never done that before, but if you're listening on the phone, look at the iTunes app, scroll down to the bottom where it says leave a review. It's actually really easy. Same thing with the computer. Just look for that leave a review button. This helps others find us and it lets us know how we're doing. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you on LinkedIn. Reach out to me. I, I read and respond to every message because hearing your feedback is the only way I'm going to get better. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.